0: I'll write it and we'll do it live! It's
1: the music, I guess, it starts my feet tapping and I get all happy inside. You
0: will not laugh! You will not cry! You will learn by the numbers! I will teach you! Would you stop with the down drumming? You ain't got no problem, Jules. And wait for the wolf who should come directly. you send in the wolf? I'm just having the time. Having the time. I want all of you to enjoy your cake.
1: So, enjoy. Drums. I don't like the sound of those drums. And then you holler back, he ain't our regular drummer. Once again, the little podcast that could <laughs> is forging new territory. We are breaking new ground here. Not only are we going to end up doing our first question-and-answer show, but we are doing it remotely with two guests who live locally. John, how's your Skype connection, buddy? Sounds
0: good. I'm happy. I uh, I got so much to do this week that this is making a huge difference in, uh, in my time restraints. A lot, some people don't know, like, for you and I to get together is quite a commitment
1: of time it the it is not a stretch to say that our mutual round trip commute times are significantly longer than the shows themselves yeah most of the time that's correct i mean if if we ended up doing shows that were longer than our commute we would end up doing like one show per quarter the drummer's quarterly groove cast
0: That would be about all of the interests that would be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, let let me say this before we jump into our question and answers for the day, is that um, you've heard us talk over the past, I guess, two or three uh, episodes that we have been humbled beyond belief regarding the amount of positive listener feedback to this uh, second season that we are halfway through right now. And in particular, I wanted to take just a couple of minutes before we started answering questions to talk about some of the feedback, read a couple of listener emails. They're not questions. They're just comments uh, about these past two shows, which were the J.M. Van Eaton interview, and then there was the Roger Hawkins artist feature. And let me start first with uh, the episode two, two shows ago, which was the J.M. Van Eaton episode. And here's just a few quick comments. Uh, from Adam, we got superb interview. Uh, from Steve, we got great interview. Probably one of my favorite episodes. And from some of our friends over at Symbolholic, we got, Thanks, JM is one of my biggest influences. And uh, that's kind of interesting, man, because you don't normally hear that very often from a standpoint. I mean, a lot of people know who JM is, but, I mean, here's somebody that just flat out said he was one of the the biggest influences. So that's that's very nice to have. Yeah, you,
0: it, it's so interesting, man. We get so locked into the the big name and the big superstar high profile thing and there's you know when you're talking about these early pioneers that you know like i i think like playing that style of music is not something you have to kind of dive in and really figure out the details of it you know the old chuck berry stuff the sun record stuff it's not some some people think it's like oh this straight 8th rock and roll groove and there's it's kind of in between the cracks and it doesn't surprise me that there are some people that really you know consider some of those guys big influences because once you start digging into that music it's pretty fascinating and intoxicating to to learn to play that way.
1: Yeah, you and I were talking about also that there's a real virtual cult following for that rockabilly style music, especially in Europe. And, uh, and the listens from Europe, at least the ones that we can tell for sure, uh, we've gotten a significant amount of listens uh, from the European fans. So big props, yeah. And then I want to read a couple of short emails that we received regarding uh, the Roger Hawkins artist feature. And one we got that came directly from our uh, webpage, uh, is from a gentleman named Jim, and he says, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this season's episodes. Really great. I listened to the Roger Hawkins episode today and thought it was fantastic. Being from the Detroit metro area, I love listening to people from other parts of the country discuss Bob Seger. When I got home today from work, after listening to the podcast, I went through some of my old CDs of Seger listened to them, and wished I still had the vinyl. Keep up the great work, Jim. And there was significantly more in that email. I edited it out, but that's that's the meat of it. And then we got another very nice email uh, on our SoundCloud hosting page. Um, and it says, love the groove cast. Great job, guys, especially the latest one on Roger Hawkins. I met Roger and the rest of the Swampers in the early 80s down in Muscle Shoals our first serious demo to be shopped to record companies was cut in Broadway Studios with David Johnson. Roger and the gang were around, and we grooved with him some. Great times. We were offered several terrible record contracts, but fortunately we were smart enough not to take them. Maybe we gave up some fame, but avoided the pitfalls of the record industry from those days. Thanks, The Moderns. And that's a, a an existing band. He didn't give his actual name, but that. He just used his... Uh, his band name from his uh, SoundCloud account. So really nice guys. Yeah. We really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. It means a lot. Um, You know, we don't, this is a labor of love for sure. And and to get positive feedback is, is huge. It really, uh, it really kind of validates our, our efforts
1: and, and it's appreciated. Well, and just continuing along that theme, uh, since we've been doing the show, we have always uh, encouraged our listeners to reach out to us if you have any questions or if you have any type of ideas for future shows, and you guys certainly take us up on that. And Over the past couple years since we've been doing the shows, we have answered a lot of emails, uh, and then there's a lot that have been been asked again like sometimes we get the same as a matter of fact two of these questions that we're going to tackle today have been asked previously and I think we have kind of touched on them before uh, but we have a bunch of new questions as well and uh, we want to address them in our, our first ever full show of question and answers and uh, let me go ahead and say this also we always get back to you personally if you build us <laughs> uh,
0: I just want to make sure that I think there's one I never return.
1: You, so. you you get back to people as well, especially especially if there's if there's something addressed to you, and I go, "Hey, John, this guy really wants to know what you think about this." Yeah, patience is a virtue, right? <laughs> I don't know why anyone would want my opinion but (laughs) But but we've gotten a crop of new questions, and this is our first time we've ever dedicated a full show to question and answer. But these questions that we're going to look at today, most of them are pretty deep. When you guys ask questions, a lot of times there's not easy answers. So I thought that John and I would take a few minutes, talk about each one, give you our opinions on each one, and, uh, and just see what you guys think about it. And like I said, again, if you do email us directly or message us directly, somebody will get back to you with an answer. So all these have been answered to their respective askers. So, John, let's go ahead and dig in. And here's our first question. And the question is, how do you get anything substantial accomplished with minimal practice time? And this question was sent in by a gentleman, an adult, who is not a full-time musician, and he's got limited time due to work, family commitments, etc. And so, Mm -hmm. (laughs) John, you want to take a stab at this, or you want me to go first?
0: Uh, I'll go. Um, Go for it. I feel I'm highly qualified to talk about minimal practice time. Um, it, it really has nothing to do with my schedule, just my laziness. But <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you know, it, when I thought about this question, and I think from my perspective, if you really truly have minimal time, I think what makes the most sense to me is to focus on something and try to master it, no matter how long it takes, instead of trying to go broad with, you know, 50 things that are thrown at you about what you need to have together. Just take one, you know, what, is, what is it? Is it your 16th note groove is suffering because of your right hand? Well, just focus on that in your practice time. You know, if it's two days or two weeks, whatever it is, focus on it and master it and just get to the point where it's second nature and get to the point where it's, uh, you know, You just you you really feel confident about it and then and then move on to something else. But be realistic about what you want to accomplish as a player and then make a list. And with minimal time, you're going to have to be patient. But don't I think it's best under those circumstances not to spread yourself too thin.
1: You know, kind of
0: kind of lock down on something and get it get it together and then move on to something else. That's that's my advice.
1: I am wholeheartedly agreeing with that. That is, ex- that is exactly my point also. I'm going to elaborate on a few little things also that might add some to it. Much to your point, John, the main thing is if you've only got 15, 20 minutes every few days to work on something, one, you need to set a realistic goal, and then you have to be organized to achieve that goal. You need to be very specific and very mindful during that short amount of time that you have. And like for example, if you got an upcoming gig and there's a couple of songs that you have to learn, you need to be very mindful and go straight for that. Have a very goal specific style practice routine. Yeah, that's so, gotta
0: be a priority.
1: Yeah. Sure. It's the same thing. If you've got a particular method or a chapter out of a method book, if you don't have gigs, again, be focused on that and work on that. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to say a couple things that are going to revolve around this thing of having too much distraction. One, keep electronics and other electronic distractions away during that short 15- or 20-minute amount of practice time that you got. I mean, that is hey, that is incredibly important. And one of the main reasons, aside from getting phone calls and text messages, is it is so easy to get bogged down when you have way too much information, like through YouTube or websites or something like that. A lot of times, we're really good at being researchers for this type of information or this type of work or practice that we're working on. And what ends up happening is we research and we research and we research and we never end up working on the stuff that needs to be worked on. And so all of a sudden, that 15 or 20 minutes of what could have been your practice time is spent looking on YouTube at videos of which probably three quarters of them are not even worth your time looking at. And along that same line, you got to be careful if you've got this short amount of time that you don't inundate yourself with too many things in that practice time like it's great to all of a sudden have four or five method books like oh well I want to work out of the syncopation book I want to work out of the new breed I want to work out of chafee patterns well any one of those three books is basically a lifetime study and yeah, if you only have
0: 15 minutes a day you're gonna be You're going to go
1: nuts. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to be so far in over your head, you're going to get discouraged and quit. So you've got to really make sure that if you are going to work on one of these method books, be realistic and take just a small chunk out of it and try to accomplish it. That's significantly going to benefit you in the long term more than sitting there trying to think that you've got to work on three different methods in a 15-minute period of time. And yeah. And so, you know, just be realistic with what you've got, the time that you got, and then make sure you set some achievable goals where you you don't want to look for perfection. You just want to look for excellence and you want to make sure that you spend the proper amount of time that you've got working on the things that need to be worked on. And for that much if you only have like those 15 or 20 minutes a day, if you've got that amount of organization and mindfulness behind you, you're going to be better off than probably 90% of most people who have multiple hours a day. So you can get a lot done in that short amount of time. So that's my answer. And, hey, John, I want to piggyback on something that you got a ton of positive response from. You yeah. you posted a really cool thing on um on Facebook the other day about this great little practice kit that you put together and you even made the point that, Hey, I've got a limited amount of time, but I got stuff I got to do. Just tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the next question after that. Um, well, it, it came down to a
0: couple things. One is, uh, as far as practice goes, I didn't have, a lot of uh time that, that no one was in the house and all that i have a neighbor who works overnight as well and wanting to be mindful uh of all that i came up with a solution it was a, I have a nice little small kit down there i put on those silent stroke heads the mesh heads and i got those zildjian low volume symbols which The bane of my existence in practicing uh, at a low volume was uh, I had pads on cymbals, like, you know, that HQ pads or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. They didn't feel right. These cymbals feel incredible, and they inspire me to practice a little more. And uh, a little hack that I came up with that seemed to be what some people really were fascinated with was I took car door trim. It's a little, you know plastic strips of a r- hard rubber strips that you put on the edge of your car doors that put them around the hoops of the drums to take uh, some of the volume down on the, uh, the rims, the sticks hitting the rims. So it's served me well. I've been using it uh, a lot. And you know, on top of that, I'm not just getting killed with volume. Uh, I have plenty of that on my, when I work. So, it's nice to not be so incredibly loud decibel levels at some ungodly thing. And, you know, so it's, it's, I'm really digging it. That's, that's kind of where we're at with that.
1: Hey, one quick question before we move on. You Mm -hmm. mentioned in that post that you were doing it because you you felt like that you needed to have a little bit of practice time every day. And you even alluded kind of maybe off the cuff. It's like, ah, this old body needs something to, you know, to practice on to keep even moderately in shape so that when I get to the next gig, it's going to be okay. What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing in those 15, 20, 30 minutes?
0: Um, I, I typically, I, I always start out just kind of freeform and just start messing around. And, you know, I'm not much of a chops guy, but every once in a while i kind of stumble into something that's pretty cool. It's not terribly difficult, but it sounds, it sounds nice. So I, I kind of mess around with that, um, freeform solos, so to speak. You know, just getting warmed up. I'm a really great soloist in my basement when no one's listening. That's what I figured
1: out. <laughs> well, uh, that's, but no, no. that's your next Facebook Live.
0: Yeah, right. But uh, but I, I I dig like right now I, I'm in a I'm in a period of time where I've had, I've had to learn a ton of tunes and be prepared for some rehearsals and some gigs so uh you know i warm up with that but uh just playing through stuff and, and when i talk about my body my my biggest concern with that is from gig to gig man i'll have a gig where it's just effortless and then i'll have a gig where i, I just i cannot get comfortable I, I have no flow i have and it's just miserable it's miserable and that kind of thing can really you know kind of blow up in your face too yeah so uh i've just kind of thought well i i I need to uh i need to address a couple things one is playing a little bit every day to to work some of that out and you know also like my joints are starting to suffer a little bit so i've taken some supplements that are helping but you know that's just taking supplements on their own like i still a biggest battle for me playing is my technique's not great and you know, I might not play for three or four days and then sit down and have to blaze a gig. So I'm trying to head off that frustration with spending a little time every day playing. I don't know if I'm practicing, but I'm playing. I'm pra- I guess I'm practicing learning songs. I'm not practicing in a, in a method sense, but
1: whatever. It, but it is goal-specific, though. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah good deal. Yeah. Um, right. yeah, that's it. Second question. What can I do to save a cracked symbol? Ooh, boy, now that's that's a tough one. There are some answers. They're not all necessarily great answers. Uh, and they need to be approached from the different kind of cracks um, that we know that can happen. And, and the big ones are the edge crack, the lathing groove crack, and then cracks that stem from the mounting hole in the center of the bell. Uh, This is a tough one, man. Uh, I want to say one quick thing first, John, and then we'll start throwing our remedies out. The first thing that I would do is if you see a crack, and I don't care where it is, if it's in the bell, if it's on the edge, or if it's in a lathing groove, take a pen or a marker and mark the ends of the crack. And all you're doing there is you're going to monitor it over the next couple of, you know, performances or practice sessions and see if it's actually advancing. And the reason that I'm saying that is this, is that not all cracks advance. Now, I would say most of them do. But let me give you my quick story of one that did not. I had uh, an older, I guess it was probably the Early nineties, do you, John? Do you remember the um, Zildjian pre-aged K's? Sure. <laughs> I had a pre-aged K that developed a small crack that came from the mounting hole, and it probably didn't go any more than three eighths of an inch. <clears throat> and I thought, you know, this is going to be one of those things that I'm going to have to end up having it drilled or or something. I marked it with a marker, and after I noticed it and made the mark, it never advanced. And that's so, nice. Yeah, and so the thing that I, the point of this entire thing is that you don't want to end up trying to fix a symbol that has a crack that develops and then never gets any further if it's not making any sound or if it's not not directly inhibiting the the sound of the symbol. So that that's the first thing that I wanted to say. Yeah. John, you want to go ahead.
0: Backing up, backing up, um, one thing that you know crack symbols are a, a continual problem with certain players. And I, I just think the most important thing that we all should be mindful of with the cost of symbols as they are now, is proper technique. And there's I see lots of guys who don't use proper technique, you know, that the swiping motion is That's not just, that's not just, you know, pipe, man. That's like, I mean, I remember Zildjian who would benefit from crack symbols Mm -hmm. saying, hey, swipe, you know? And uh, so that's something that we all should be mindful of and try to to be better about. And then this subject would be less of an issue for everyone. That being said, um, when it comes to cracks, personally, I only deal with edge cracks. I don't, lathe cracks, they're really, you know, I've seen people notch them out and all that. I don't, I I don't have the patience or maybe even the tools to do that properly. Um, But edge cracks, I normally, uh, if I try to get them early, you know, quarter inch or whatever, and I mark it and then I use snips to notch that out. And then I use uh, a Dremel tool. Mm Mm-hmm. With a, a metal, uh, you know, something that, that is designed to, uh, I can't remember what the the actual uh, part is, but it, it kind of acts as a file, if you will. And you can finesse that and really make like the curves and all that real smooth. And, you know, if you have a good sounding cymbal, nine times out of ten with a small crack, you make that little notch. It still sounds fantastic. I have two or three at home that are still fantastic sounding cymbals. So, um, bell cracks, ooh, that's a, I, I don't really, I don't mess with them. I, I mean, I just, I don't know the proper way to, I guess you could kind of try to notch it out,
1: you know, Josh, in a
0: less gradual way than an edge crack, but
1: let, let me tell you what my, plan was going to be on that pre-aged K if that crack keep, kept advancing. The best way that I can describe it was I was going to make that crack an intentional keyhole. Do you, <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? I, I, I was going to try to, to um, basically notch out with some sort of a Dremel slash grinder kind of a thing, a small intentional keyhole. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's what I was going to do. But again, one thing that I always tell everybody and what I told the listener first off, I said, you know, you got to have a little bit of a spirit of adventure if you're going to try to fix this thing on your own. And I said, especially if it's a, a really treasured simple symbol, one yeah. that's, that's perfect. I told him, I said, you know, it's probably worth your while to see if you can seek someone out that is known for doing good work on symbol repair. And of course the, 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 one name that comes up to most people who've been in this business for a long time is a gentleman named Nodar road. Um, mm-hmm. he's been known for, for fixing many, many a symbol or at least doing good work on it. Sometimes when you say fixing a symbol, uh, you know, everybody does their best work on it and then, you know, it still ends up cracking. Sometimes there's just, you know, there's nothing that can be done on it. It's the, Proverbial stage four cancer patient, uh, but I always tell them to look for somebody who who knows a little bit about this and that has been you know reviewed, that has good work and has worked for some other people. Now, yeah, man. like I, guy like
0: Noard, there's nothing he hasn't seen. That's a real advantage.
1: Yeah, and you know, I don't. I'm I might be speaking out of out of turn when I say this, but it could even be worth reaching out to a gentleman like Matt Bettis. And seeing if if he would work on it for you. Uh. Yeah. You know, because I mean there's there's probably nobody around that that knows much more about making symbols and the tendencies of symbols than Matt Bettis. Um What are they gonna do? Ship it in a canoe? <laughs> send it by Pony Express. <laughs> I get more I found him. He was way down the river. Man, let me tell you, I get more enjoyment on looking at Matt Bettis's uh social media posts than any other 30 drummers combined, because it's all exactly what you're talking about. It's like, yeah. hey, it's like hey, I'm getting in a canoe and going 10 miles down the river to make some cymbals. That's pretty good. I like it. And then, John, one last thing I want to add about edge cracks. Now, again, you're talking about being a real cowboy if you do this. Have you ever seen anybody that would have an edge crack that's maybe like a half-inch... Uh, half inch into the edge of the symbol, and let's take for example, let's say it's a 19 inch crash. Have you ever seen anyone then just go, well, hey, I'm going to take the diameter of this thing down to an 18 inch crash and make it an 18? Now that's some roast. Yeah, that's some real cowboy stuff. I honestly have never heard anyone do that and made the symbol sound good afterward. So I was going to say
0: that's the cowboys because that that I have never seen a symbol they're not going to be the same no you know, a a thin symbol all of a sudden becomes a medium thin symbol
1: exactly because it's just the yes. taper of the symbol itself
0: yeah so that, that i don't i don't like that idea that's like and and that that always that kind of strikes me as like grounds for someone convincing themselves that it sounds good versus it really sounding good you know what i mean it's like no nah, that doesn't it doesn't work well. It's been proven time and time again that that approach is is really kind of worthless.
1: I would rather play the broken symbol and just let it continue to break, you know.
0: Well, there'll be there'll be we'll probably have plenty of people saying I do it all the time. Like, That's cool. I don't.
1: Yeah, and John, I want to button this up by making one of my famous blanket broad statements. Uh oh. And well, and it's basically this, and and I make do, sure it's
0: politically correct.
1: Yeah, I think though a lot of people are going to see where I'm going with this. My experience overall, when it comes to all kinds of symbols that break and are there being repaired, is that essentially cast symbols have a tendency to break less, but when they do, they seem to repair slightly better than stamped sheet bronze. And it's just simply because of the uh, the bronze formula of stamped uh, uh, symbols. It's generally a little bit more brittle, whereas the cast symbols are a little more malleable. Yeah, I agree. All right, so moving on. Question number three. And this is one of these, John, that gets asked. I'd say this question has probably been asked at least three or four times. And it is... Is there any real value to knowing music theory, being a drummer? Wow, now there's a there's an open-ended question, uh, and
0: I, I'm gonna go get a snack. <laughs> no, uh,
1: what I want to do is I want to first off narrow this down a little bit and say I, let's approach this from the elemental parts of music theory because the people that are asking these questions are not somebody are not people that are sitting here talking about going through graduate school theory to where we're analyzing Stockhausen experimental pieces.
0: Or or even, you know, somewhat sophisticated inversions. That's not even that we don't need to get into any of that.
1: Right. And let me tell you where I want to start it at is basically Let's just take it from the most elemental standpoint of the ability to read music. We're going to call that music theory. And the answer to that is if you have any intentions at all of really playing any sort of gigs outside of your, your basement or your, or, or your garage band with buddies, you pretty much you need to do that you're going to make yourself a million times more available, more marketable, and more hireable if you can at least learn to read music. And it is not difficult. Uh, I can't believe how many people think that it's this incredibly elusive thing and that it's it's so difficult that it intrinsically takes away your ability to play music uh, naturally if you're reading. And that's not the case at all. I mean, how about Jeff Picaro? How about john robinson how about virtually every great studio drummer you've ever known uh, are probably reading charts for the first time a lot of times and then playing these great feeling tracks so i just want to throw that out from the beginning that from a very elemental standpoint of music theory reading music is highly highly beneficial
0: i agree i think that it gets a little murky when we're talking about theory though um because I kind of took that question as, you know, understanding progressions or knowing, you know, one, four, five and this kind of thing. And and uh, I think I don't think it ever is going to hurt a drummer to have a, a, an idea of song form or progressions that make sense or, you know, a 12 bar blues, even you know, like, mm hmm. I think I think there's most people can hear a 12 bar progression but do they understand what it is um and you could debate for a long time you know how deep in it you need to be or how important it is to a drummer um and I I think there's valid arguments on both sides but I know that uh in communicating certain charts and certain arrangements and that having a even a minimal knowledge of of certain things uh have helped and i know as as being in a situation where I, where we were writing songs you know being able to communicate man that chord doesn't work like here and you know like maybe we need to try this or or even an inversion or, or you know what, what? we don't want in the base. You know, being able to hear and communicate it—that certainly is an advantage, um, and, it, and it's helped me to have a working knowledge of that. From a drumming perspective, um, I, I think it, it has helped to not come across like an idiot, you know, yeah. in, in certain settings. So, having a working knowledge of it, I think, I think it helps on 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 those levels. I don't think you need to know, like you said, you know, we don't need to get into the the deepest of deep music theory as a drummer. Right?
1: Exactly. And to your point regarding that, I kind of made these four levels or these four examples of where where you could advance in music theory and where it would be necessary or beneficial and essentially first we talked about it's just if you want to do this for a living you at least need to be able to read okay so we've established that maybe the second level would be this if you have any desire that you want to compose write music having some basic theory knowledge you know just chords chord scale relationships it's going to benefit you tremendously. Say a third level would be is if you want to get to the point of being able to produce music, work with other music or other musicians uh, in the studio, other musicians writing, you need a baseline of theory so you can just successfully communicate with them. Right. And then. If you tell
0: someone something's dumb, you probably need to tell them why. <laughs>
1: Vocalists don't think that way. <laughs> uh, they think it, it, And then the fourth way would be if you want to teach, especially on any type of significantly higher post-secondary level, then it's an absolute 100% necessity because all right. yeah, well, I'm good. Yeah but <laughs> well, it, it, to use one of my famous terms, it's educational malpractice. If you don't do that. Yeah, that's, that's true. All right, moving on question number four. And this is another one that's been asked several times and there's a million good answers to it. What gear do I need to get a decent drum recording? Wow. So this is a multi-tiered, multi-tiered question.
0: Um, I am a huge, huge believer and proponent of the source being the most important thing in a sound recording. Mm -hmm. And that is a good sounding, well-tuned drum set and cymbals that are musical and appropriate. Uh, Without without those you, you I don't care what mics you have what you know plugins you have none of it matters and that 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 is the that's the first and foremost of what you should focus on before anything else and that's that's my
1: that is number one on the list sir same same over here and then it certainly doesn't hurt if you've practiced well and you know what you're doing as far as like actually hitting the drums mm-hmm. now if you want to go, to the next level as far as gear goes now we all know that gear is an absolute money pit rabbit hole um you can you can take it to the nth degree or you can take it to the most minimalistic approach and one thing let me use an example um virtually everybody who's listened to this show knows who Mike Johnston is. He's a guy that was on the show last year. He is the owner of mike'slessons.com. He is pretty much ubiquitous in the education world these days. He makes some fantastic sounding recordings. And John, do you know how many microphones he uses? 3 2 2. And I mean they yeah, they sound great. And basically, he's a guy that knows how to tune his drums. He knows how to play his drums. He's got two decent microphones. They're not even super high-dollar microphones. And then he's got a couple of good mic preamps, and then he just records into a DAW. So he's got that going for him. So there you go. Yeah, so that's what you need, okay? You need a computer. You need some software. That's what I call a DAW. You need an interface and however many microphones and stands you want, and then some headphones so you can monitor yourself. From there on... After that, you can add studio monitors, you know, the actual speakers. Then from that, you can just continue adding mics. And then from there, if you want to keep going nuts, you can start adding what I call recording peripherals. You know, all the toys and all the good stuff like different outboard gear, different effects units. And of course, for the digital recorder, which we all are, there's a myriad of plugins that you can many get many of them for free or very low cost that can make your DAW sound like you're recording at the record plant. Uh, so there you go. Start out simple. If you can get a good recording sound going simply, you may not need to do anything else, but... John and I are in lockstep over you gotta make sure that you know how to play, and then you gotta have good sounding, well-tuned drums and musical cymbals. Yeah. All right. John, this is the fifth question. And this question is a little bit alarming. Um and because we have actually answered this one once before, but we keep getting people asking it. Uh, and the question is, what suggestions do you have to help with or prevent carpal tunnel syndrome? And that is one, man, that is, that's worrisome, man, that we, we've been getting that question asked a couple of times.
0: Mm-hmm. It doesn't surprise me, though.
1: Yeah, I know. Uh, y- you and I have a very good friend who has a daughter that's suffering from something similar Uh, Mm -hmm. right now. And it, and it, it is, it's, it's something that's endemic. And I think a lot of it also has to do maybe not just with drumming, but there's so many things that we do on a daily basis that applies pressure to the carpal areas or the carpal tunnel areas of our hands that, Until you isolate it, you're going to have a problem knowing if it's just caused by drumming. And I think that's one of the biggest things you have to do. And then you and I have answered this question before. And one of the things that you and I both agree on is that the very first thing when it comes to thinking if it's coming from drumming is you have to get your technique pristine. You have to get it absolutely beyond reproach. And that means everything, of course, from hand technique, holding the sticks correctly, not too much restriction, and also your setup. You have to make sure that your setup is ergonomically beneficial to you and that you are not reaching for things that you shouldn't be reaching for or you're playing on these severe angles, whether they be severely tilted or tilted away from you or whatnot. That's the first thing we want to impress upon you is that. Yeah. The, the second – go ahead. No, I'm good. I'm listening. Uh, the next thing that I want to talk about is even when you get your technique pristine and you think you have everything exactly where it needs to be set up wise, make sure that you watch yourself either in a mirror or maybe record yourself a little bit to see that when you're playing and you're sort of in the heat of battle – that you're maintaining the technique that you've been working on because there's a lot of times we're sitting there maybe playing on a snare drum and we're just like playing single strokes or double strokes and we're looking at our hands and we're looking at our setup and it's like, oh, yeah, things are looking good. And then all of a sudden you get into the heat in the middle of a song and technique flies out the window. So monitor yourself in actual performance style settings And then make sure that you're keeping in touch with the technique that you've been working on. And with that in mind, let me say this one quick thing about recording yourself. One of the biggest things that I harp on students about is don't sit there and record yourself working for three hours. You don't have enough time to go back and look at that. You need to make sure that you record yourself in short, manageable snippets where you can go back and look at yourself over the the length of a song, perhaps. And make sure that, that your technique's not going out the window whenever you do that. So that's the second yeah. thing.
0: Um, I, I, I'm not surprised by the number of inquiries we have about this and the almost epidemic. It's almost an epidemic as far as drummers having these problems. And I think a big part of it is, you know, we're talking – uh, two or three generations removed at this point, with the uh, you know the the popularization of rock and roll, and you got you got a number of influential drummers over the years that don't have very good technique. Mm-hmm. And you know we're talking yeah, when we started we start looking back in the '80s, and there was a lot of the hairband guys. There were a bunch of guys that were just bashing away. Um And, uh, you know, some of them had exceptional technique, a lot of them didn't, and that was a big influence with a lot of drummers our age, to uh, have that stick up over your head and coming mm-hmm. down and smashing that, that uh, snare drum and heavy cymbals and all this, and, you know, the image that is the powerhouse drummer, well, there, there might be some uh residual effects to that and then you know you're talking about i mean okay let's just talk about the next generation you got your your dave Grohl's, and you've got some of those guys that were hugely influential and um maybe maybe being the uh the cause of some of this by way of emulation and you know like emulating them and and what have you and uh, you also get into, uh, you know, the the core thing is a huge, huge influence with a lot of kids coming up, and you're banging away on a tabletop basically, for, you know, hours on end all summer and all that. So, it doesn't surprise me with with those things in mind that, um, you know, that the, there's just inevitably more problems physically with drummers as we say it's evolved, some people might say, I don't know if it's evolved, it might have gone backwards, but nonetheless, the influence is inevitable that uh, some people are gonna be really enamored with some styles of playing that maybe technique is, is kind of taking a second, uh, you know, a backseat to image or or attitude or the vibe of the music. And it's not right or wrong, but inevitably some people are suffering at the hand of that. I think that's just my observation and why I think there may be more people talking about these problems than 20 years ago.
1: Uh, That's great observation. And I want to add one thing about the drum corps uh, styles that you were talking about. Not only uh, when you're playing on a Kevlar drum head that's tuned up like a brick wall, can you have problems? But in the actual visual showmanship aspect of that, you also have intentional motion restriction. And when you have that combination to where you know they're intentionally restricting the way you hold sticks, intentionally restricting the way that you accept rebound from drums... And then you're playing on those type of extreme surfaces. There's a good tendency that you can end up developing some of those problems. So, good point there.
0: Um, well, I, I I can kind of speak to it because, um, I'm I'm sort of at the beginning stages of some problems, and it's uh, I know a lot of it has to do with two things. One is I went through a phase in the '90s where I was really really playing hard and heavy and uh i also am kind of of the generation where we went through a phase in the studio where you they just wanted you bashing mm-hmm. you know kenny off bashing you know like that and I, i've come to realize a I'm, I'm not that type of player but b i've also suffered at the end of that a little bit uh doing hours on end where you're just throwing it down you know and I think I'm, I'm paying for that. But also, um, I, I can certainly tell you that not doing much warm-up for the last 30 years has, has factored in as well. I, I've never been much of a warm-up guy and stretching guy, and I'm paying for that now. Now I have to uh, on some level. I'm not probably as dedicated as I should be, but all of the things factor into my developing some concern over my my hands and wrists
1: yeah well to kind of wrap this up the last thing i wanted to say is that if you're if you've done all these different things that we've talked about about making sure your technique is where it needs to be make sure your setup is where it needs to be watch the velocities that you're hitting etc of course you have to go see a doctor that specializes this to try and get some form of a diagnosis that's incredibly important. And then, you know, you, you should also be very, very transparent to this doctor to let this person know whether or not you're doing other things other than drumming that could be contributing to it because nobody wants to hear that dreaded thing of like, oh, you have to stop playing. That's that's an impossibility for most of us. and Yeah, I was going
0: to say it's an impossibility. I wouldn't mind hearing it.
1: <laughs> and
0: That's another story for another day.
1: And we had, John, we had a a listener email us in response to one of the first time we uh, answered this question. And we were saying, you know, look, there are certain types of modalities that you can use that will help, you know, combat this. And one of the ones we left out, but one of the listeners said is that you can also visit occupational therapists that have expertise in dealing with this type of injury for the certain occupation that you're doing so want to throw that out there as well and then i
0: have one in my house and i'm kind of avoiding it so we'll figure
1: well let us know how that works out uh, uh and the last thing that i want to so tell me
0: phil said your technique sucks <laughs> and you need to change it and then everything would be okay that's pretty much how that conversation would go
1: you need to get your stick control book out and work on page three.
0: Uh, I'm a, I'd rather be a Walmart reader.
1: And then the last thing I want to say is there are times that you can have these issues, you can go to the doctor, the doctor gives you either a clean bill of health or they give you the nebulous... Uh, We don't know what's going on sort of thing. And we know people that have been down that road. I was actually down that road once before with my neck and shoulder. And I will once again encourage you that if you have gone down the road, no one can diagnose you or they say you do not have carpal tunnel. I will suggest once again, go back and listen to episode 75 of this very podcast. And it's the episode with Dr. Howard Schubiner. And he has provided relief to thousands of people, including yours truly. So if you've exhausted all of the avenues and it's for sure that you're not, you have an undiagnosable problem, orthopedic problem, not just carpal tunnel, check out episode 75 with Dr. Schubiner. All right. John, we've done, That's I think, good. enough damage here today.
0: Uh, I'm damaged.
1: (laughs) Um, We have not done our segment on great underrated drummers this season. And as it stands right now, this is going to be our only shot at doing it. And so you made a great point when we wrapped up that last episode that we done together of we need to get this in. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get it in today. John, you want to go first? You want me to hit it? I'd love to go. Go for it
0: uh my underrated drummer is a he was a los angeles based studio musician named john garen um his i'd say probably his most uh, high profile um, work was with the la express tom scott's band and they were kind of at the forefront of modern groove jazz stuff they definitely um You know, when you think about smooth jazz, they were on the less cheesy end of things because they were all great players, and especially John was such a versatile player. Um, And they backed up Joni Mitchell for quite a while, mid mid to late 70s, and had a lot of exposure in her heyday, for sure, when she was just as prolific as they come and putting out records that a lot of people were really, really digging. Uh, They did a number of, uh, uh, gigs and recordings with her And but John Is is it's way deeper than that With him um, He played with Zappa mm-hmm. for Off and on for a number of years Late 60s early 70s He's on probably four or five of his records um, I don't know about The entire record but he always Was kind of floating around In those Zappa circles and Frank Would find things that he thought Oh John would be good for this and They'd knock it out and He always sounded great with that. Um, You know, and some other rock and roll stuff, um, George Harrison, Linda Ronstadt. um, He also was in The Birds for a short time. A lot of people don't know that. Um, But, man, he had a really, really pretty solid jazz background. And uh, um, his feel and sound were always real together in that. And because of it, he worked with a lot of big names you know sinatra oscar peterson ray charles and then even even deeper like sonny rollins and monkey did some stuff with um had a lot of respect in that uh and the thing that sticks out to me that really showed um and and there's there's a love hate relationship with this but the bird soundtrack that uh movie about charlie parker that uh, Clint Eastwood did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they used a lot of birds solos and heads, but then they re-recorded the backing music, and John did the majority of that soundtrack, and and sounds really good. Um, and I, I just think he's really underrated when you look at his body of work and how versatile he was. A lot of he did a lot of other soundtrack stuff, percussion stuff. He was a drummer on the Hawaii 5 theme. You know, it, it, it's pretty deep, man. He went, he was a real broad, his recording career was very broad and and I would say authentic on a lot of levels, too. So John Guerin, uh check him out, man. Uh, a really underrated L.A. guy that did a ton of stuff. A ton of stuff.
1: Great call, man. I want to uh, make a quick recommendation for one of those uh, LA Express records. There's mm-hmm. a record uh, that he did called Tomcat. Yeah, uh, man. Man, that's a, that's a heck of a record right there, man. Check that one out if you can find it. You can probably find uh, snippets of it on YouTube.
0: No doubt. I think, I think he's a perfect example of someone that you can hear he has great technique when he plays.
1: Yeah, that's a good call, man.
0: That's a good. Yeah, he's 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 a really together player on a lot of levels.
1: I thought he sounded really good on that Bird soundtrack.
0: I do too, and I heard some people really, you know, going on about it. And I kind of, I I, I kind of think it had more to do with maybe a racial slant than a uh, than an actual performance slant, because uh, there were some people I remember some blowback about it, like why do they have him? You know, it's like. It
1: sounds pretty good. Yeah. Uh, John, my drummer that I'm picking today is uh, a fellow that I actually picked an underrated drum track of his maybe like, I don't know, nine, ten months ago. And it's uh, the wonderful New Orleans-based drummer Herlon Riley. Uh, The reason I picked this guy is because I've recently kind of been digging into some of his back catalog of different. Uh, recordings and videos and whatnot that he's done. And uh, boy, he deserves to be talked about significantly more than he is. Um, And I have never heard this guy play in any setting, whether it be a piano trio, a quintet, octet, or a full big band, that he didn't sound amazing. I mean, I've never heard this guy sound even moderately uncomfortable on anything that he's played. Um, He's a New Orleans drummer that has that New Orleans swagger, but man, he has got incredible chops. And he plays with a certain precision inside of that New Orleans looseness that kind of sets him apart from a lot of the other guys. Plus, he's so steeped in that tradition down there that he can play all of the peripheral things along with drum set. Of course, he can. He's like a master tambourine player. If you've ever seen the guy play before, as well. No. Yeah. That's cool. So he's he's an amazing player just overall. Um, some of his career highlights, as far as like recordings, he's probably done conservatively. 30 different albums with Wynton Marsalis in several different configurations, whether it be like the quintet or, you know, uh, Wynton had like an octet or nonet for a while he recorded with. And then of course that Lincoln Center jazz band. But But the one record in particular I want everybody to take a listen to when you get a few minutes, because it is available on YouTube. Listen to his work with Ahmad Jamal, on the Ahmad Jamal Live from Montreal Jazz Festival record. It's like a double record on vinyl. It, he sounds amazing. And this is from the early 80s, probably 83 or 84, somewhere in that ballpark is when that record was done. And he's just amazing. And then as far as like some videos and whatnot, he did he was part of a book and part of a DVD compilation. That was just called New Orleans drumming. And it had him and Johnny Vidakovich and a couple of other local New Orleans guys just demonstrating some different traditional New Orleans style grooves, beats, some just basically going over the genre and what makes New Orleans, you know, very unique and different among the different other styles that we play. And some of the different videos and recordings of him doing that is. Absolutely fantastic, and it's so geared, of course, to the drummers where you can see and hear everything that they're doing so cleanly and so plainly that it's just great. So that's my underrated drummer. Go check out Hurlin Riley. He's a beast, no doubt. Good call. Thank you, sir. Well, John, I'm going to say that our first remote podcast has been a success.
0: I It appears to. I guess we'll go back and listen and find (laughs) out. But I, I, I like sitting on my butt, not driving all the way to your house. So, hey,
1: let's make it happen. Folks, thanks as always for your patronage and listenership. We greatly appreciate your support. We're doing this show for you guys because, uh, you know, you guys reach out to us through your emails, through your social media, through your comments, that that sort of thing. Keep the questions, comments coming. We greatly appreciate it. As always, you can listen to the show anywhere that you access your favorite podcast, iTunes, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, SoundCloud, Your favorite app should have it. If you can't find it, then you can head over to our website. We are at www.drummersweeklygroovecast.com. There you can listen, of course, to the shows. You can check out our videos. You can email us there. You can manage your social media subscriptions to our uh, podcast there. Again, we just appreciate it. John, you want to add anything else? Uh, I think... um
0: you know like the uh, the idea of uh, theory I want to get back to that real quick um, just just don't be overwhelmed by that I, I just kind of stuck in my in my brain as we're going through the show don't be overwhelmed but with that and how how you feel I, I think you're better off continuing to improve your drumming and make that a secondary part of it could not. That, that, that's that's the only thing I wanted to go back and make sure because I think there's some people that are gonna be like, oh my God, music theory and all that. Man, don't don't get too crazy uh, with that. Anyway, um, again, I, I thank you so much for the feedback and the support. I can't, you know, I, I I'm not gonna be able to convey how much it means to me, but I know I speak for Phil when I say, you know, that's that's what. we're we're, that's the payback because there's not much otherwise it's it's you know knowing that people are locked in and and appreciating where we're coming from and at the same time you know just being being open to to our opinions means a lot
1: right on And the one thing that i'll say also about the theory thing is that it's much like the topic that we're talking about what do you work on when you've only got a few minutes to work on it and how can you actually make progress theory is again one of those topics it's so deep that you can take it to the nth degree and what i would suggest is if anybody wants to get into the beginning parts of it don't immediately run out and buy one of those books like the piston book or tonal harmony or something like that 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 you would use in you know, in a college theory, um, in a college theory class, you might want to try uh, the first book uh, of Berkeley Music Theory. It's it's a it's a really well laid out practical approach to theory for like a modern rhythm section. So I know that book, and that's a good one. And then also the Alfred Essentials book to music theory is absolutely great as well. Very much the same thing. It, it doesn't it breaks breaks theory up into very small meaningful chunks uh that you can uh uh, you can certainly absorb and not get over your head so right on
0: hey and be mindful of pain it's important that you address pain uh you're getting from playing. it's really important
1: right on all right ignore all right guys we'll see you next week peace bye-bye